Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. All right, so you know what has happened. There's been a war. The Philistines and the Israelites have come to war in the Valley of Jezreel. Okay, and the Philistines basically kick butt and take names. I mean, it is an annihilation, really. And in this war, um, Saul and his sons are killed. And we heard about Saul falling on his sword. First, he was, he was badly wounded. He was not going to live. And he sees that the Philistines are coming around looting and what? Making sure that everybody's dead. And he knows that if they find him... They will make sport with his body. And so he falls on his own sword on Mount Gilboa. We find out that his sons fall and they die too. Do you remember what people group came and rescued? By the way, the Philistines do loot. They do take the bodies. They're probably shocked when they find the king on the battlefield because to be honest, they would have removed, if there had been an Israelite living they would have gone through trying to remove their king from the battlefield so that his body would not be made sport with. That tells you how big of a loss um, they had. And so the Philistines came, took Saul's body and Jonathan and the other boys and cut off their heads as trophies. And they took their body stripped down and they nailed them up to the walls at Bet Shemesh. Um, I've actually been there um, and seen Mount Gilboa and they would have put them up there as a reminder of this great defeat. Do you remember the people group? Did you read what people group came and took the bodies off? Jabesh Gilead. And we talked about they're the ones that in Saul's very first victory as a king, they are the ones he saved. When the Ammonites threatened to gouge out all their right eyes and Saul cut all the pieces um, of the cattle, cut, it, cut them in pieces, sent them out through Israel and said, listen, we're not going to put up with this. If you do not show up to protect your brethren, this is what's going to happen to your cattle. And do you remember 300,000 men showed up and they protected and they saved the men of Jabesh Gilead. That was Saul's very first victory. And now look what people group or what tribe just showed up to take his body down off the wall. And they would have taken their lives in their own hands. They were sneaking through Philistine territory to take down Saul's body to bring him back so that they could bury him properly. So they did that. In the meantime, right, David has brought all of his family back um, where the Amalekites had come in and had burned down Ziklag, their land, and had taken the families. He has now brought them all back. One important thing that you need to understand is all along he has been sending loot or gifts to the land, to the tribe of Judah. Okay, that's important. But as he is now recovering in Ziklag from fighting the Amalekites, um, he gets word that Saul about, about the, the defeat. And he hears about it through an Amalekite messenger who appears to be grieving on the outside and he comes and he really tries to play the what? Kind of the hero. Did I tell you all this story? Yeah. And he basically says, this should all be review. 
he basically says, I was there, I saw Saul, uh, he was mortally wounded, he had fallen on his sword, couldn't get it done, so basically, I put him out of his misery so that they would not, you know, do the awful things they would do to him if he were still alive, and um, I have his crown and his bracelets, his wristbands to prove it, and I've done this thing, and he's acting like what? Like, oh, I have really done you a favor, right? What is he trying to do? He's trying to do what you're going to see everybody trying to do, and that is maneuver their way into some position of power so they can survive in this atmosphere of war. That's what they're doing. David does not buy it, and he executes him. Then he takes time to grieve. And so when we look at this, I told you before, what is David grieving? I think he's grieving everything. I really do. I think he's grieving everything. And there is a great article. Um, let me give you the title of it because I have it handy. Hold on. Um, it's called Understanding Avoidance and Grief. And I think very often we don't like to sit in our emotion. If you know anything about the Enneagram, I'm a three. I don't like emotion at all. All right. So to sit in it is miserable, but it's necessary. And so many people avoid grief. It's called understanding avoidance of grief. And it is, uh, let me just read you some. Avoidance is an important concept for grievers to understand. Some of you may remember, we briefly touched on this subject earlier. And she goes on to say, to avoid is broadly defined as to keep away from or stop oneself from doing something. For example, I might avoid Interstate 695 on my way home from work because it is always congested. Then I might avoid an old acquaintance in the grocery store because I really don't feel like talking. Finally, I might avoid getting in line behind a sniffling woman with a cart full of ginger ale, popsicles, and cold medicine. Now, I want you to take a minute to think about this example and think about what it is I'm really avoiding. Am I avoiding people and places? Technically, yes, but why? The real reason is I steer clear of these specific people and places from a desire to avoid unpleasant experiences and feelings that I associate with traffic, awkward encounters, and illness. Do you get my drift? And so she says, when we talk about avoidance in regards to grief, we are usually referring to experiential avoidance. We don't want to feel the feelings. So what we do is we avoid every possible thing that triggers it. Do you understand? We avoid going a certain direction because if we see some building that reminds us of something, or we see some person, or we drive by some church, or whatever it is, that all of those can bring back feelings of grief. Grievers must walk a gauntlet of traumatic memories, painful emotions, logistical issues, and secondary losses. At first, one might feel shackled down by the weight of all-consuming grief, but over time, find they have periods of semi-normalcy broken up with waves of grief. Have you ever done that? Oh, man. Where you, you've grieved and you think you're done. Oh, no, you're not. Because all of a sudden, you have some days and you're like, oh, dang, I got through it. I'm through the tunnel. I am looking good. I am doing good. And then all of a sudden, you wake up one day and what happens? 
This wave of grief comes over you and you're like, what in the world? I think I shared with you guys um, in my times of grief and I've had grief. I have secondary grief. I have, I think in very traumatic events, you've got all kinds of things. The wheels are coming off completely and you've got a lot to grieve. And to be honest, sometimes you don't have time to grieve. The world does not allow you to grieve, honestly. And because why? You've got to go to work. You've got to make a living or your kids depend on you, or guess what? They're grieving harder than you are, or the wheels are coming off in their lives worse, and what are you trying to do? You're trying to hold them up, so Lord knows you can't fall apart, you can't do it. So sometimes it takes time, or it takes a long period of time to really work through all it is that you're grieving. I think I told y'all last time that, you know, I, I read something in the paper about Zachary. And I literally lost my junk. Like I was sobbing and sobbing. And I called him and I said, I'm so sorry you didn't make it. I mean, I'm so sorry your dreams did not come true. And he's like, mom, are you, are you okay? Like, why are you grieving this now? And I go, because I didn't have time to grieve it then. I couldn't grieve it because you were falling apart. And I didn't want you to fall apart. So I was like, we're good. We're good. Yay, Zachary. Sports is not your identity. You're somebody else. What does God have for us now? You're good. I know you have Lyme disease, but we got this. What doctor will we see? Oh, we're in the loony bin. Okay. Well, you know what? I, I mean, honestly, like it was so much at one time that I don't think I was able to grieve different parts of it. And what will happen is you'll be out running or you'll be out doing something and then all of a sudden you get these triggers and you're just either mad and screaming or you're crying or, and guess what? Good. Get it out. There is a time to what? To grieve and to be sad and to get all that emotion out so that it can heal. And I think that that's awesome. I will tell you this the other day, I had the greatest time I wrote all day long. I went hiking. I had the greatest day with the Lord. People probably thought I was charismatic Bill on top of West Wing. I was listening to a sermon. It was firing me up and I was running and I was running like this. I mean, running full force. And I'm like, yes, amen. Ooh, preach it. I, I mean, it was so good. It was to me. And I know that people were like, wow, she's, you know, she's excited about. And I no more got off that mountain in my car I can't tell you because I'm being recorded as very personal triggers, but I will tell you, <laughs> I got four triggers in a row that would blow your mind, that would send anybody who was me into just like, <gasps> you know, and you know what I did? <laughs> I, the first one, it was crazy. It was two people I've never seen together. Walking across the street, I see them together for the first time, and I was like, huh, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm okay. I'm not mad. I'm not angry. I'm not hurt. I'm good. I'm okay. Wow. All right. And then I went to the next thing, and I got another trigger that was a more recent pain, and I'm like, I'm okay. And for the first time, I thought, well, gosh, maybe I've gotten some of this junk out. Like I've screamed enough, I've cried enough, tomorrow I'll get a trigger and fall apart now that I'm telling you all this. But here's the thing I've learned. We have to go through it. You can't avoid it. 
If you could, I would, and I have for a long time, but you can't avoid it because you've got to feel it. So you know what? Don't avoid your triggers. Don't. I think uh, there's some therapies that make you have to face them, right? You have to see them and you have to face it. Here, David begins to lament, and I think it is very interesting because if you would have had this Shannon three years ago, I promise you I would have skipped this lament. If I was teaching the Bible to you, I would have skipped it. It wouldn't have meant anything to me. I would have been teaching you all of the narrative. I'm into the story. I'm the storyteller, right? And I would have gotten to the lament, and I would have said something like this. This lament is great. I think you should study it, maybe meditate on it this week. But for time's sake, I'm going to skip it, and we're going to get back to the narrative. But because of where I am, where I've been, I sat in this lament. And I happened to be grieving when I first started studying it. And so all of a sudden, I realized, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And I want, to, I want to tell you something. There's something called progressive revelation. And you can, you can probably define it just based on the words. Making progress, moving forward, and moving forward in a positive way. Progress. And revelation means that you're having new things, what? Revealed to you. Well, guess what? That's what happens with the Word of God. The more you study it, the more you what? learn. The more you think you know, the more you realize you don't. I've been studying this so deeply for so long, and there are still things that are revealed to me that I have never seen. And now in my life, I'm seeing it completely different because of what I have gone through and how it speaks to me. And so studying the Bible in and of itself in your spiritual life is progressive revelation. Because as we get older and we experience life and we go through things, what we know about the Bible sinks down from here into here because we've experienced it. It's also how the Bible is written. Think about it. It's written like progressive revelation. The Old Testament is types and shadows leading up, giving us a little bit more and more and more information until what? The absolute word of God shows up on the pages as Jesus and we get this full revelation in Christ Jesus. But I want, I want you to think of something. I don't know if you go to CCV, but if you went, were in a neighborhood group uh, uh, this last week, they looked at the Bible project and they did these little clips um, of the overall story of the Bible. Some of the feedback I got, they thought it was kind of rudimentary, right? I did not see it that way. I thought they did a brilliant job of basically describing the Bible in about two minutes, uh, the story, the narrative, because what I have found out by teaching very few people truly have a good grip of the overall narrative. And I used to teach it to young people. That was my thing. They would come in with the different stories, the different pieces, and it was my job to be able to tie it all together and then teach them a systematic theology. Today it's difficult because I'll be honest with you, this generation is the most biblically illiterate generation I've ever seen. They don't even know the story, so I have to start at the beginning, right? But... It's this overall narrative. If you don't know the overall big picture narrative of the Bible, I'm just going to tell you, you're going to miss some things. There's beauty in the whole picture together. There's also beauty in each individual story. But here's the thing. 
I can look at a story, if anybody, I can analyze that story to death. I can literally teach it to you almost a word at a time, tell you all the meanings, tell you the application, tell you, I could get stuck there. But we would miss the beauty of it if I couldn't put it in the overall what? Story. That is the same with your life. How many times do we get to one section, one story of our life, and it's almost like that's all we think we, it is. We're stuck right there. And we analyze it, and we try to figure it out, and we mourn over it, and we're in it, and that's all we see. And how many people make permanent choices off of temporary emotion for one moment of life when I'm telling you the beauty of it is, is yes, that is one of my stories. But that one story is what? in a beautiful big narrative of my life that God has planned out. So do not get stuck in one season. Experience it, feel it, learn from it, but you're not done. God has a plan for you in this overall narrative. I mean, think about it. If I went back and I only knew the story of David and Goliath and that's it, man, what a stud, right? Or what if I only knew the story of David and Bathsheba? Wow, you really screwed up, right? But what do I know? I get the privilege of knowing the whole thing. And so there is a time for everything. You're just in one section of your story. David starts out this lament, and I would give it the title, Oh, How the Mighty Have Fallen. Because he says that three times in this lament. And I'm going to suggest to you, this is just Shannon opinion version, uh, that I believe every time he says, oh, how the mighty have fallen, I think it's guttural. I think he is falling apart. I think he's sobbing. Because what I see overall in this is he grieves, he grieves the big stuff first. Why? That's all you can see when it first happens. Honestly, oh my gosh, this has happened? Like divorce, my family's falling apart. What's going to happen with ministry? What's going to happen to the name of Jesus? Don't you think for one minute, Satan, you won? Oh my gosh, oh how the mighty have fallen. Like it's all big stuff. It's all panic. The world just fell apart. You can't even grasp it. That's all you can see out here. And that's what he is doing. He says in verse 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high place. How the mighty have fallen. He begins with picturing all of their deaths, not just Saul and not just Jonathan. The whole nation, all, the entire army is laid out dead all along Mount Gilboa. And he is seeing not only the deaths of individual men, but literally the entire defeat of the nation of Israel. They have been seriously wiped out and their king is dead. And he is sitting there thinking about this situation that the first king of Israel lay dead on the field. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. And then he says, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. What is he saying? Oh my gosh, he's thinking of the defeat of the nation. 
And then he's like, I cannot even think right now of the enemy celebrating. It's too much for me to even bear to think that these Philistines are rejoicing over this victory. I don't know if you've ever grieved and realized, oh, I don't even want to think of the enemy rejoicing over this. That he has won, that he has given some fatal blow. I can't even stand the thought of it. Or you may have thought, oh my gosh, the name of Jesus, how the name of Jesus will be affected. And it's all of these big things. And then he says, you mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. What's he saying? Gilboa, I don't want to see not one thing bloom on you ever. I can't even stand the thought of seeing a bloom. I don't want dew to hit you, rain to hit you. What is he saying? I want the cycles of the world to what? Stop. I want everything to stop. I want you to be a symbol to everybody to remind the world what is happening, what has happened here. I don't know if you've ever been brokenhearted or you've ever gone through grief, but there is a time where you're like, do you people not know what I'm going through? I just lost this. I just lost my daughter. I just lost this. How the heck are you going to TJ Maxx? Really? How are you shopping for shoes in Nordstrom's? I'm dying. Do you not, does the world not know I'm dying? You sit there and you drive. I've had friends that have lost children and you're like, where are these people going? And so I remember friends who lost kids and they were, it was almost like they were insulted that the world continued. And I think David is sitting here looking and thinking, you know what, Gilboa? I want you to show everybody how bad this really is. He is grieving with all of his guts. And then he says, am I on verse 23? No, 22. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan, turn not back, and the sword of Saul, return not empty. Wow. What is he doing in his mind? First, it's all out here. The nation, the fallen nation, the king, the enemy, Mount Gilboa. And now, in his mind, he's going back to picture the war. He's picturing the battle. Why can he do that? How many has he been in? I mean, he used to be one of the greatest commanders in Saul's army. If anybody knew what Saul looked like in war or what Jonathan looked like fighting, he knew. He fought alongside of him, and he's thinking about it. Don't you do that? Can't you go back in your mind, right? And you can relive things in your mind and remember exactly how it felt, and that's what he's doing. Or you're remembering someone or you're remembering a relationship, probably romanticizing it too much if you've gotten past it, but we start to think through it. And he, in his mind, he is sitting there and he is thinking about how they fight, that they never turn back, that they were so brave. And he goes on and says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. He is thinking about Saul 
with that spear. I'm going to tell you what, Saul was a beast. He was a warrior. And he is thinking about how Jonathan could sling that bow. I'm going to tell you what, he could do it. And he pictured them fighting. And he pictured them fighting side by side. And guess what he's doing? He is saying, listen, he's remembering the good stuff. They fought side by side. They stayed together in life and death. Now, let me ask you something. Did Saul and Jonathan have problems? Well, yeah. Yes, because Jonathan had a covenant with David who Saul had determined was his enemy. They didn't agree on that at all. Matter of fact, Jonathan knew exactly where David was and would go encourage him while Saul was trying to come around and kill him. They were divided on all kinds of issues. But in the end, what is David saying? No matter what went on between this father and this son, no matter what their differences, guess what? They were still fighting together on that battlefield side by side. They lived together and they died together. Isn't that what we do in the end of people's lives? We don't sit there and rip them at their funeral. Lord have mercy. I mean, you could say all kinds of things about me. I hope you don't. But... (laughs) We, we remember what is beautiful. And he is sitting there thinking, you know, Jonathan stayed loyal. Saul, as crazy as you were, and as crazy as you thought that Jonathan was a part of some big revolt against you, he really wasn't. You guys fought side by side. They were swifter than eagles and they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. Weep over Saul, who clothed you luxurious in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Do you see what he's doing? Big events coming down. Now he's literally thinking about those two men fighting in war, father and son. And now he goes down to a single and he remembers Saul first. That's really interesting. Saul first. And what he says is he goes, listen, you nation of Israel, You better grieve Saul. Now, David, was he a big fan? I think he had, I think he had a love in his gut for Saul, but he knew Saul was wackadoodle. And he also knew that I'm sick to death from running from you. I mean, it was, they were enemies. But what he is saying is, Israel, you can say whatever, but while he was in stinking office, you prospered. It was good. Okay? It was good. Your life is good because of this man, because he freed you, his entire kingship from the Philistines. He did what he was called to do, and your life was better for it. So you need to grieve. Don't you remember any other thing but what this king did for you? And then here comes the biggie. What does 25 start with? Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Okay, so first he cries it at the beginning. It's big. It's coming down because the grief is sinking deeper and he is beginning to grieve more and more personal. And then he thinks of who? And he says, oh, the mighty have fallen. And I think he is groaning. It's getting deeper. It's harder. And he says this. In the midst of the battle, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. So right now, he's not just thinking, he's not imagining the battle. He's not imagining the actual fighting of the two. He's not imagining anything, 
but his soulmate laid out on the ground dead from this battle. That's what he's imagining. And he says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Man, this is so formal, but think about it in our cries. I loved you. What am I going to do without you? You're my best friend. I'm so sad. Who do I want to talk to about it? You. When I become king, who did I want at my side? You. And he's sitting there and he's thinking about him and he says, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. That is an interesting phrase, isn't it? Some people try to make that like a romantic love. I don't believe that at all. I think this is the most beautiful picture of covenant that, to be quite honest, doesn't get mixed up in male or female roles. Because it is the most beautiful picture of covenant of two strong individuals. To be honest, that I believe either one of them would have made a good king. I think Jonathan would have made a, a fine king, but that was not God's plan. And because of his submission and love of God, he did what? He could have been it, but he what? Stepped back because only one could be king. And he allowed, he believed David would come into that role and he stayed loyal to him. And I truly believe when he is saying this, this is not has anything to do with romantic. He is saying, listen, my love for you surpasses anything else I can describe. And I don't believe their marriages were the same as ours today, okay? I don't believe the, I mean, come on, the status of women was not where it is today. They had multiple wives. And so you think, you know, what was that one man, one woman relationship? That wouldn't exactly be there. I think Abigail was a smart cookie. I think she could probably stand up with David and have some good conversations. But let's be honest. Women really were there to love the man, right? To fulfill their need. The man was way more powerful. It was not an equal relationship. And he is saying, listen, our relationship surpassed anything I can describe, any kind of romantic relationship I could have with a woman. And so that was the highest compliment. And then... What does he do at the end? Verse 27. Oh, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. What is he saying? He is sobbing his brains out and he realizes there is nothing he can do. This is not a battle he can win. It's done. It's happened. And he is left grieving. And he has to grieve it out. There's nothing I can do to change it. There's nothing I can do to get out of it. There's nothing I can do to fix it. Oh, how the mighty have fallen and all the, all the weapons of war. They're useless. And he grieves and he grieves. I think he ends wailing. It's interesting if you go to Lamentations. Lamentations is a book of grieving and... It is the city of Israel. It is, it is the nation of Israel personified as a woman. That's what Lamentations is. And she's lamenting. She's talking about all of her woes. 
and she's basically yelling them out. And the number one thing that sticks out, if you just want to write, jot these references down for later, Lamentations 1.9, 111, and 120 through 21 all basically have the same point. It is this, see me. Does anybody see me? Can you see me? Do you see what's happening to me? Can you see my woes? And I'm telling you, in a cycle of pain, when you're hurting and grieving, that is the number one thing. You need someone to see you, to recognize what you are going through. It's huge. And then I'm going to tell you, it got so bad that in Lamentations, the narrator is speaking. He's talking about her. And he's just the narrator. He is just saying her words. But she is so sad that by the time you get to chapter 2 in Lamentations, verse 13, the narrator actually stops narrating and he turns to her and says, Oh, you poor daughter. Oh, your sorrow is as deep as the sea. Like, he couldn't avoid it. He's tell, it's like a newscaster telling a story and then realizing what he's talking about and being overcome with emotion. Right there, it shows us that the number one thing in pain is that someone wants to be acknowledged and seen. Another beautiful example of this, I've taught you about this before, is do you remember uh, Jacob's two wives, Rachel and Leah? You remember that whole thing? He's supposed to marry Rachel and then he woke up with the wrong chick. Little too much to drink on the wedding night and no familiarity with her. So, I mean, hello. And so it was a bad deal all around. He wakes up with the wrong chick. Can't imagine what his facial expression looked like. Can't imagine what he said. He ran out immediately. I cannot imagine what she felt to think that the only way my dad can possibly marry me off is to trick a man, right? Because everybody loves stinking Rachel. And can I just tell you right now, if you're a Leah, there will always be a Rachel. But if you're a Rachel, there will always be another Rachel. There is always someone that is bigger, better, more beautiful, more talented. It doesn't matter. Comparison. Here's the problem with comparison. This is just information that has nothing to do with grief. Here's the thing with comparison. Ed Milet said this the other day on a podcast I listened to. He said, any place of unhappiness in your life, there will be comparison. Whether you're comparing yourself to someone else or your situation to somebody else's situation, or you may be comparing yourself to a prior version of yourself or what you used to be like or shoulda, woulda, coulda, but every point where you're feeling a discontent or unhappiness, you can probably pinpoint some comparison. That's just a little uh, FYI. But back to Rachel and Leah. Leah is in agony. Can you imagine? Listen, she is not only married to a man who doesn't want to be married to her, but he does not love her at all. Matter of fact, he loves her younger, beautiful sister who she's been playing second fiddle to her entire life. She's miserable. She's grieving. You know she's grieving the loss of dreams and possibilities, and here she is in this life. And right away, we see what the cycle of pain looks like. Number one, she starts having babies, and we get to see it. Number one, she has Reuben. Reuben means 
Look, see, I've given you a boy. What is she doing? Do you see me? You finally see me? Do you, do you see? Do you see what my potential? Do you see what I am? Right? Look, what, look. I mean, can you imagine naming your kid that? Hello, this is my son. Look, it's a boy. I mean, that's what it's like, right? Second, what does she do? So the first thing, she needs to be seen. Second thing, she names him Simeon, which in the Hebrew sounds like the word to hear. And she literally says, God knows I am hated and he has heard me. She desires to be what? Heard. Like, do you hear what I'm going through? Do you understand? And then this one kills me. Finally, at the third one, she says, I'm going to name him Levi because at least my husband will be attached to me. She wanted love because when she had Reuben, she said, maybe now my husband will love me. By the time she gets to Levi, she's given up on love. She's like, she's like driven to the land of settle. And she's decided that she can just settle with attachment. Just something, right? And then when that doesn't work out, she has Judah, which finally she says, I will praise the Lord. That is the cycle of pain. To be seen, when we're in pain, we want to be seen. We want to be what? Heard. And we really want to be, we want to belong, okay? And we can search for that in a lot of places. But finally, what did she realize was the one place she could find it all? In God. I will praise the Lord, Judah. And so everybody wants that. When someone is in grief, when they're sad, when they're grieving, can I tell you one of the biggest things you can do is number one, just see it. Just see what they're going through. Just listen. Because do you understand that when someone's hurting, all they're going to do for a while is give you a running commentary on their pain. Do you understand that? They're going, if they're safe with you, all they're going to do is they're going to let it all out. And they're literally, they're not even logical. They're just speaking. They're getting it all out. It's a running commentary of what is going on in their pain. And one of the things that you can do for them, right, is number one, just listen. And then probably along the way, remind them of a couple of things. Because what they do, have you ever been with someone who's just hurting and it's just going, 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 and you're listening, and they go, am I crazy? Like, am I going crazy? Is this even right? I don't even know what I'm saying. Like, is, is this what I'm saying? I don't know. Haven't you ever heard someone do that? Because they are hurting so bad, they don't even know if they're really in reality or if all that's going through their brain, like, have I lost my marbles? And at that moment, that is your opportunity to just lovingly remind them of some stuff. Well, I want to remind you, remember back here where we said this? Or remember when you were concerned about this? Or remember, and you're just reminding them. You're not letting them romanticize too much. You're not letting them go so dramatic. You're sitting with them. And the bottom line is, what are you doing? You, you want them to know that they belong. They have someone. Don't send them a verse. I mean, you can. 
<laughs> Sometimes that is the least helpful thing for me. Because when I'm raging through, listen, I, I know and I take it well because I know the intention of people who send it. But when you're just ticked or you're just not having, you're just like, really? First off, you just took that out of context. That's not even what that means, but whatever. And, you know, I know he's going to work it out together for good, but it don't feel too good right now, and I don't even care because I'm mad at him. And, I mean, you just, so what do you do? I see you. I was thinking about you today. If you need to talk, I'm here. Let's go to coffee. Let me sit with you. Just sit in that because I'm going to tell you what, that's exactly what Jesus wanted. It is okay not to be okay. He showed up to his buddies and said, what? I am in anguish. I am so sorrowful. I'm to the point of death. Could you not just stay up with me for a little bit? Do you think Jesus needed a verse given to him? <laughs> or a real quick Instagram that was just right on? I mean, he's the living word. You know what I'm saying? What did he need? He needed to be seen by the people that loved him, that what he was going through, to be heard, he needed their support. That is what we do with grief. Well, we're about to change. Ooh, I get to set it up. Because I'm going to tell you what, this next section is awesome. And it's probably a section you wouldn't have been that thrilled with if you'd been reading it by yourself. But if you like any kind of shows like Scandal <laughs> or um, uh, West Wing or any political shows, I'm about to knock you out with this section because it's exactly what's happening. There is, you want to talk about an election year? It's happening right here in the pages of the Bible because now we've lamented, we've grieved, and now the office is missing someone. And now everybody is going to be after it, or at least two sides are going to be after it. And I'm going to tell you what, you're going to be so shocked how they handle it because they handle it just like we do. And in the bottom line, I'm going to tell you the one who wins is the one who owns the narrative. Okay? It is so interesting. So let's set it up. Chapter 2. Here we go. It would be so helpful to me if by next week you read chapters 2 and 3 because I'm going to teach it to you next week in an hour. Okay? After this, David inquired of the Lord. Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinam of Jezreel and Abigail, the wid widow of Nabal. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron, and the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Okay? So I told you earlier, David has been greasing the wheel for quite some time because David knows eventually he is going to come back in the land and be king because that is what God has told him. He's been anointed for it. And so listen, he's no dummy. He knows that the best place he could possibly enter back into the race is what? Through his own people. That's what. Because you are going to start a race with the people that you're the closest to that have your back, that you guide, they're your people. And so he is from the tribe of Judah. And so he comes into the area of Judah. It's his own tribe. Not to mention, he's in really good standing with them. Why? 
He's been sending them loot, okay, gifts all along. Hebron is the capital, basically the capital of this area. And so that's where he goes. And it was a Levitical city. Now, why would places like these Levitical cities be pro-David? Well, what was the house of Saul like for the priests? What did he do? Do you remember? Well, he killed them. When he was searching for David, do you remember? He sends old sneaky old Doeg, and he kills the 85 priests at Nob and their entire families. He wipes them out. So any Levitical city is probably, if we could do a, you know, red and blue, if I had a big screen up here for election day, all right, Judah is, is going to go David's color, okay? And for all of those reasons, familial ties, um, because he's had good relations with them, and because it is the city that, of priests, okay? So there you go. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh and said to them, may you, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now, now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant for Saul, your Lord, is dead and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. What's he doing? He's taking, he's taking this, you know, time to speak to Jabesh and literally express his genuine gratitude. Honestly, he is genuinely grateful for what they did for the house of Saul, that they removed those bodies from the wall. I mean, remember, it's Jonathan too. Saul and Jonathan removed and they went and gave them a proper burial and he's saying, listen, I get it. I know what Saul did for you. I know what he did to protect you. And I want to tell you, thank you. Number one, for taking them down and burying them. And I want to encourage you in this time where you don't have a president, you don't have a king. I want you to stay strong. But I also want you to know this. Judah has already elected me as king. And I'm telling you, I'm for you. Just like Saul protected you, I will protect you. You see what he's doing? David's good, okay? And he is working it. Here's the last part I want you to know. This last section is going to set it up. But Abner, the commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, try to say that five times, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanam. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Okay, I want you to understand some stuff. Abner, do you remember him? If you don't, it's okay. Kind of not really. Abner was Saul's cousin, number one, and he was the commander of Saul's army. And you probably remember him because do you remember the story I told you about David slipping in at night to Saul's camp the second time he didn't kill him and he could have? 
and he snuck into the camp, he and Joab, his commander, and there they were, right over Saul, and the spear was there, and the water jug was there, and Joab's like, let me, let me do it. Come on, I'll make it short and sweet. He won't suffer. One time through, done, our problems are solved. David's like, how many times I got to tell you? You don't kill the king. You think you're a fugitive now? Kill the first king and see how long you're going to be a fugitive. This is not it. This is not, plus, what a horrible precedent. I'm going to be king one day, and I don't really want people who decide they don't want me as king to run me through, right? We're going to trust God in this situation. No. And so if I was watching the movie, I'd be like, shut up, quit talking, just get out of there. You're going to get, I mean, this is bad. So he takes the spear, he takes the water jug, and he sneaks back out of the camp. And then he goes, right, to where they can't see him, and he yells. And who does he talk smack to first? Abner. Hey, Abner, great job over there. Way to go, Mr. Bodyguard, commander of Saul's army. Dude, I was there. I stood above your king. I could have run him through. Yay, you. And you think I'm the enemy of the king? If anybody needs to be put to death, it's not me. It's you. You fell down on your job. Do you remember that? So this is the Abner. So he's Saul's cousin. He's the commander of the army. And now his king has died. And he is in a place where he is not going to lose that power. He is going to keep it. And so he runs and he goes and finds an heir of Saul. Now, I'm going to tell you my thinking. This is not biblical at all. This is just my wondering. So write this in pencil in your head, not pen. Okay. Ishbosheth's name means man of shame. Okay. So my first thought, well, where the heck has he been? Right. I don't see him in any of the wars. He's not talked about. He didn't die in this battle. So where's homeboy been? Like, what's up? What's going on? And man of shame. So I just kind of wonder if he was an illegitimate son that was kind of put away that only Abner, a cousin and the commander of the army would have known he existed. And when that happened, Abner is not the line. He can't run it, but he can find somebody right over here and go get him and pull him out. And really, he just becomes a puppet. And the more you get to know Ishbosheth, the more mealy mouth, little weak, you know, kind of king he is. And Abner is running the show. Now, I want to show you something. I think I have it. I don't know if I do or not. Hold on. I want to see if I have a map. Ah, I do. Okay. Can you kind of see this map? Yeah, a little bit? Okay. Here you go, Kath. Okay. So, <laughs> you see that? So, do you see this is all the territory right now that Israel has, okay? Philistines are still over here. So, all in this big line. But all of this dark spot in here. That's Judah. So David only has this section right here. Abner went and got Ishbosheth, and he literally went through all the land. Benjamin, Ephraim, Jezreel, Asher, uh, Gilead. He came in, and now they have control over all that amount of land. And there is a dividing line right there between Judah and Benjamin. And so the next section 
Um, that is what it is showing them. In verse 12, look at it. Okay? Or in the section above, that's in 8 through 10, or 11, it shows you where all he went. Now, when we come back together next time, we're going to be in, is it, am I in chapter 3? Yeah, 312. Okay? 212. I'm just making that up. 212. And we're going to start with the battle at Gibeon because it starts everything. It's, it, woo, it's going to be quick. So I want you to see really quick back at this map where Gibeon is. Okay? Right there on the line. Okay? That's where it's happened because that's important. Because what happens in this is Abner is bringing Ishbosheth, the whole army, down to the line. They have approached the line. They're moving, they're scouting, they're seeing what's going on. Do you not think David has scouts throughout the land to check what's happening? When he sees this movement to his territory, what do you think he does? He sends his group up to hold that line. It is very interesting to me because this war starts around this uh, little uh, pool of water, this lake. One is on one side and one is on the other. And what I want you to remember, these are all brethren. One has taken sides up here. One has taken a side up here. And I'm going to tell you, we have a tendency to do that. Us and them. Good and evil. We give each other titles. We want to decide what camp someone is in. Before we even have a... We have gotten to the place where we have to be in the same camp to even have a conversation. Because we have faced off as brethren. And I'm going to tell you, I have this happen to me all the time. I have people email me. Craziest. I have people email me with emails like this. Um... Hello, Mary Shannon, I am so-and-so, and -and you're coming to our city to speak. And um, I would like to know where you stand on women teaching men. And I'll look at that, and I'm like, (laughs) oh, okay. (laughs) I'm like, so here's what's happening. Let me break that down for you. This person does not know me. They are trying to decide what camp I'm in on whatever their hot button is. Okay, because if they can determine what camp I'm in, if I'm not in their camp, they don't think anything I say is worthy to be heard. That's enough for them. It is, you know, you're on that team and I'm on this team. And they're literally coming at me with a preconceived plan that if I don't say what they want, I'm giving them reason not to come. And guess what? I'm not going to give them that reason. And the funny thing is, is that the Aspire event is for all women anyway. So why are you asking me that, right? Another question, and this happens to spiritual leaders or teachers all the time. I get emails of, what is your opinion on homosexuality? Who are you? Why are you asking me that, right? That is why. You want me to say something so that you can put me in a camp so that at some point you're not going to listen to anything else I say. And can I tell you that we have done this to our young people in the sense that 
we have taught them that if someone says something stupid or something we don't agree with, that they are, you need to then just shut them down and not listen to another thing they say because we villainize them. And can I tell you, we wouldn't be where we are today if we stopped listening to everyone who said something stupid or that we disagreed with. I want you to think of the scientists, the psychologists, the philosophers, you name it, who said all kinds of stupid things, tried all kinds of different things that didn't work, that literally don't agree with us on any of our religion or theology or whatever, but yet look what they discovered and look how they changed the world. We, I'm telling you, the basis for this is fear. When we cannot have an open mind to sit down with people who are not on our team or don't agree with us about everything, we create an environment like the one we're living in today that is so polarized we cannot even have a conversation. And when that happens, nothing gets done and the majority of the time it will lead to some form of violence. And so I believe we need to quit being so scared that someone might ask us a question that would make us ponder exactly our stance in something or what we believe. And Lord knows if it's theology and they start to question what we stand on and we're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't touch that. Don't touch that. Listen, don't be afraid. Know why you believe what you believe. Stand in it. Let me tell you what was so great about Jesus. He walked into a situation where there were sides. And often he got those emails that tried to trap him. And he was so smart because he always had a third way of thinking. He always had a way, a third way of thinking where he wouldn't get trapped. And he laid out the most beautiful uh, story of love. And so I just want to encourage us because we're about to get into this political stuff right here. I don't get political, but you know what I mean? And it just reminds me coming up. Remember, someone may vote different than you. Someone may see something completely different. Sit down and find out why. What's their story? How do they read that? What's their experience with that? Why do they believe that? Tell yours, but good grief. Have a stinking conversation. And quit using and villainizing, using words like evil or all of these things, right? Because people get passionate about this stuff. And so, and I think we should be passionate about it. But be careful how we set up us and them. And we never can hear anything or never learn anything. And to be honest, I think this generation is doing a much better job of some of that than we are. Um, so anyway, read this. So you need to read 2.12 through 3, okay, if you want to be familiar. All right, let's pray. Did y'all have any questions? Did any of this like, confuse you? Any questions about it? You know what? If you study it, if you read through the chapters in advance and you have questions, just write them down. And then if I don't answer it, like as I teach, ask me. That's what this is all about, all right? Lord, thank you so much for tonight. Your Bible is awesome. Lord, I thank you that um, you've given us the stories of these people. You haven't called me to be like David. David is not some moral giant that I need to be like. You've told me his story so that I can learn through his testimony. 
So I can see what he did well. I can see where he failed. But on top of all that, God, what I see is you. You are the hero of the story. How in the world, Lord, you drew a straight line from beginning to end. In the middle of all this back and forth mess, I will never understand. How, Lord, you could have a plan that you will not tarry from because you're so in love with us that you wanted to bring us redemption and you chose the most messed up sinful people to get that done. Lord, you're amazing. That gives me hope that you can use me. And Lord, I pray that tonight we realize we're going to go through stuff. Life is the tunnel. You are the light at the end of the tunnel. That is what we have to look forward to. So Lord, as we maneuver through this tunnel, I pray that we don't get stuck in one story. That we don't think, oh, well, that's all there is, or this is all I'll ever be, or I'll never be happy again, or all of that. No, let us live that moment. Let us grieve. Let us have joy. Let us feel out our situation. But God, it's okay to not be okay, but let's not stay there. Because we have a whole beautiful narrative. And when we look back, some of those darkest times will be the most significant in our life for how you're going to use us. And so, God, I pray that we would fall in love with your word and in love with you, because if there's one thing I have learned to get through this life, I have got to fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Oh, God, let that be with me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.